don't get me wrong, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> I defend democracy. I defend freedom of speech. You know, I'm just calling attention to warnings. And I'm saying, if you don't look at the history of political philosophy, if you don't look at what people have been theorizing about democracy since Plato's Republic, you know, you're going to leave yourself open to dangers and you should not minimize those dangers. This is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Chris Martin. My guest today is Jason Stanley. He's the Jacob Urofsky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. He formerly specialized in the philosophy of language, but has recently changed his focus to populism and politics with his books How Propaganda Works, published in 2015, and How Fascism Works, which hits bookstores this month. Hi, Jason. Hi, Chris. Good to hear from you. How are things in New Haven? It's summer in New Haven. The students are gone. Uh, it's all about bringing kids to camp and uh, and trying to deal with uh, getting writing done. I'm sure you have plenty of books in the works, but we're here to talk about your new book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. There have been several books on fascism recently, books by David Frum, Madeleine Albright, Tim Snyder, whom you cite in your acknowledgments. What sets your book apart in terms of its goal and its coverage? Well, I think that uh, the other people who've written on fascism, I mean, take, for instance, Snyder, uh, or uh, he's a historian. And so he's going from historical expertise and generalizing from a particular case. What I'm trying to do as a philosopher is I'm trying to come up with a general structure a general structure that resonates across cultures and across times. And I call that structure fascism. I think we find it again and again. We find it now in India with the Hinduvatu movement, for instance. We find it in, uh, we find it in Turkey with Erdogan. We find it in Hungary. We find it in Russia. Uh, and increasingly, we find the kind of politics that I discuss in the United States. But I don't think it's a local historical thing. I think it, it probably has something to do with, uh, with uh, human nature, as it were, to find this structure, uh, to find this structure attractive. So I'm more informed by social psychology, by social dominance theory, uh, by, uh, by, by generalizations about human nature, as well as being informed by the particularities of historical fact. And you use the term fascism rather than totalitarianism. Some people have used the term modern totalitarianism to describe these trends in the U.S. and the Philippines and Turkey. Uh, you've chosen fascism instead. Can you talk about why you chose that term? Yes. Uh, so that's a great question. Uh, so if you look back in the 50s when people are struggling with Stalinism versus National Socialism and fascism, they're struggling whether to theorize them independently or separately you had sim the same sort of uh, issue arising. Uh, should you have one blanket term that covers uh, movements that threaten freedom and uh, enable horrific crimes against humanity, both uh, Stalinism, extreme versions of communism, extreme versions of fascism do that? Uh, or uh, should you look at them separately? And I believe it's, it's important to look at them separately. Uh, there are clear commonalities between, say, what's happening in Venezuela 
and what's happening in, uh, in, for example, uh, Russia or, uh, or, or Hungary, uh, and, you know, Venezuela by some extent may be worse. But what I'm interested in is uh, the particular rhetorical tropes, because I'm, I work on propaganda and rhetoric, and what I'm writing about is fascist politics, not necessarily fascist government. I'm interested in the particular rhetorical tropes that go with a certain kind of politics. And I think that if you just theorize totalitarianism, then you're theorizing uh, two very different, or maybe more than two, very different uh, uh, subspecies of rhetorical tropes. Uh, Communism seeks radical equality, and it subsumes liberty in the name of radical equality. Uh, And that's a danger to liberty. Uh, Fascism is a danger to liberty. Uh, because it assumes it subsumes it, it's anti-equality, it's hierarchical, and so it subsumes the liberty of the less dominant people, uh, of of the less dominant groups to the dominant groups, and it subsumes the liberty of the dominant groups uh, because it it in, envelops them in in myth, uh, so they can't act on uh, on 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 fact. Um, so both are threats to liberty. Both versions of totalitarianism are threats to liberty, but they take very different forms. And I worry that that a, a general theory of totalitarianism, a general theory of threats to liberty, uh, is not uh, sharp enough to sort of individuate histor- uh, political movements right now. You need work on the kind of thing that happens in Venezuela and work on the kind of thing that ha- that's happening with far-right nationalist movements across the world right now. So if I hear what you're saying, right-wing totalitarianism and left-wing totalitarianism are substantially different, and what you're primarily trying to address is right-wing totalitarianism, especially when it's connected to social dominance and the idea that some social groups deserve more than others. That's exactly right. Yes. Both are dangers, <laughs> but, uh, but if we subsume... Uh, if we don't distinguish them, then we don't know what danger we're, we're dealing with. Now, there are a range of arguments in this book, some of which I found compelling, some of which I uh, disagreed with. In terms of the compelling arguments, I do agree with this point you make that democracy contains some seeds of vulnerability in its essence. Uh, you cite Joseph Goebbels, who said, uh, this will always remain one of the best jokes of democracy, that it gave its deadly enemies the means by which it was destroyed, by which you mean that because democracy permits freedom of speech, it essentially permits propaganda and the use of lies, persistent lies, and persistent propaganda to undermine equality and liberty. And yet, there have been some democracies that have been relatively stable. If you think about Canada and the UK, it's not that there aren't extremist movements in those countries, but relative to other countries, the UK and Canada, maybe Australia, have been quite stable. Um, Do you think there's a constitutional element or a legal element that's different in those countries? Don't get me wrong. I'm a Democrat. (laughs) I defend democracy. I defend freedom of speech. I defend, you know, I'm just calling attention to warnings. And I'm saying, like, if you don't look at the history of political philosophy, if you don't look at what people have been theorizing about democracy since Plato's Republic, you know, you're going to leave yourself open to dangers, and you should not minimize those dangers. So 
Uh, so that said, I think Aristotle is right that democracy is the most stable, potentially the most stable system, because it allows for checks and balances on the powerful. Uh, so, uh, so, and it allows mechanisms for people to vent their discontent. Uh, I think alternatives to democracy are not stable because there's a succession problem. What happens, you know, when when the even if it's a benevolent dictator, if the benevolent dictate when the benevolent dictator goes. Um, so, uh, and stability for me is not in a, uh, in any sense the be all and end all uh, because liberty is the be all and end all for me. Liberty and equality, uh, so uh, which I think are intertwined. Um, without one, one, it's really hard to have the other, and vice versa. Um, so, uh, so I do think democracy is prone to stability. I think you know, insofar as it's instable, in, 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 instable for the the reasons um, that political philosophers since Plato have emphasized, uh, because of freedom of speech allows demagoguery. Uh, These are reasons, these are things that we need to counter by fostering a democratic culture. Um, But, uh, and and insofar as it's instable, that's not a reason to give up this system uh, in favor of other systems, uh, which don't, uh, because I don't share the values of those other systems. So, um, so I think that, uh, so the, but the basic question you're asking is, Given the sort of doom and gloom of my previous book, How Propaganda Works, how does one even explain stability, which for thousands of years was what Demo- what philosophers said? Hobbes, uh, I mean, that's a, from Plato. Only Aristotle is like, yeah, d- democracy is going to be stable, the most stable. But, de- but he's also speaking of a democracy where only, you know, the privileged few get to participate. And there are slaves, enslaved people. There, there's no rights for women, things like that. So, uh, so insofar as liberal democracy in uh, in the way, say, Canada has it, uh, what accounts for its stability? Uh, well, I think there's con- some contingent social factors. Uh, for example, Canada defines itself as a uh, as a tolerant society. Uh, it has its neighbor to the south <laughs> as a as a model that it seeks to somehow to sometimes uh, to sometimes contrast itself with, uh, for instance, as you see rising immigration uh, patterns across the world, you see increasing intolerance for social welfare states. With Canada being the exception, so can- something quite remarkable is happening in Canada. Um, so I think I think there are uh, so Australia, you know. Australia has problematic issues with racism and immigration that compromise uh, some of its commitment to the fundamental values of, say, human rights. So, uh, so one does have, does have to worry about, you know, the way in which some states are partial democracies and kept partial uh, by uh, by certain undemocratic uh, practices, exclusionary practices. Uh, but yeah, I think I think democracy does have, uh, you know, I'm not a a devotee of democracy because of stability. (laughs) Even if it were less stable than other systems, I'd still be a liberal Democrat. But I do think democracy has these mechanisms that are self-preserving. As long as Rousseau would emphasize, you can cultivate a democratic ethos. And I think you have that in Canada, an ethos of equal respect, an ethos of 
caring for one's fellow citizens. Once you start to see that ethos erode, then demagoguery gets more effective and your democracy gets less stable. In your section on liberty, you also talk about John Stuart Mill, and that's topical to Heterodox Academy members. I'm sure if you surveyed our members, you'd actually find mixed feelings towards John Stuart Mill. And you're particularly critical of the marketplace of ideas metaphor, which I myself have mixed feelings about. Can you elaborate a bit on your criticism? So, I mean, a lot of people love Mill and like Jeremy Waldron, who, who and they try to say Mill does not defend the marketplace of ideas. Uh, and so that's a misinterpretation of Mill. So let's defend Mill Star. Let's talk about Mill Star, who does defend the marketplace of ideas and not blame Mill totally. Though I think there are some issues in chapter two of On Liberty uh, that are philosophically uh, deeply problematic. Um, so uh, the problem is, it looks like uh, you're assuming when you assume that the marketplace of ideas will always win out, the truth will always win out, that words don't have social meanings. So uh, so when, in sort of ideal forms of deliberative democracy, of the sort that, say, Jürgen Habermas discusses, or John Rawls discusses, these are clearly ideal forms. In ideal forms of liberal democracy, you idealize away from features of language that are clearly present. Uh, So people only think about the reasons given. But that's just not how language functions. Language does not function by people only thinking about the reasons given. Uh, Words have social meanings, and they often respond to the social meanings. So they hear an expression like, uh, they hear an expression like uh, 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 political correctness, and then they stop thinking in terms of reasons. So like, I don't like that. And then that's the enemy, you know, they hear racism, the word racism, what white people will hear racism and they'll be like, I'm just being attacked and their, their minds will shut off and you're not discussing anymore. And in fact, this is, this is the goal of political propaganda. The goal of political propaganda is to attribute, is to, is to capture terms to make them no longer part of the space of reasons, to make them an us versus part of an us versus them dichotomy. So then you've got you know, you've got, you've got a term, and that's your term. You see this with the pro, pro-life versus pro-choice debate. And, uh, I mean, that's a bit more complicated because that involves framing the issue in a certain way. Uh, but, but people are not just responding to the reasons. I mean, welfare talk, talk of the welfare and inner city, uh, uh, warfare over these terms uh, is, is crucial in, politi- in politics. And so... When when you propagandize, as it were, terms, uh, when uh, the estate tax becomes the death tax, uh, or then when you propagandize, then people don't think about the content of the term or the content of the policy. They're just responding to, is that my side or their side? And if you're doing a theory of communication, and this is my book after this with the linguist David Bieber, a theory of communication that's responsive, not just to the things you refer to in the world, but to the social meanings of terms and to the speech practices in which terms are embedded, then, uh, then you know, lang- you realize that a discussion is about aligning yourselves into identities just as much as it is about the reasons themselves. And we don't know 
whether the truth will always win out. And given that more realistic conception of understanding, if one side is talking about social justice and anti-racist action, and the other side is talking about political correctness and threats to free speech, are they communicating or are they just trading their favorite words back and forth? So Mill assumes words just have a descriptive function. And they don't just have a descriptive function. They have an alignment function. They have an emotional function. And once you bring that in, it's not cl- clear that, uh, that uh, we're just a, the truth will always win out. In other words, the marketplace of ideas metaphor makes the same mistake that behavioral economics critiques economics for, for the ideal, uh, you know, the ideal reasoner. Uh, we're not ideal deliberators, just like we're not ideal reasoners. And so there's the same, so a linguist like me, who's looking at the reality of language, looks at that assumption and says, you know, <laughs> in actual linguistic communication, we are far from just fun- focused on the descriptive content of what's said. If I could phrase that differently, rhetoric is a big part of communication. Rhetoric is a big part of communication. Exactly. And and Mill underestimates the influence of rhetoric. Mill underestimates the influence of rhetoric. That's right. Um, so so we don't. I mean, you know, you could. There are defenses of Mill here. You could say that Mill is not focused on the two people in the conversation convincing themselves, but the audience who's looking at them. Uh, but it's not clear. You know what political propagandists try to do is they try to to change the debate into one where it's about the rhetoric used rather than about the content you're describing. In your section on race, I agreed with the larger frame that there is a politics of us versus them, and part of totalitarianism and fascism in particular is disenfranchising certain people and a party choosing who counts as a person. At the same time, one argument that I found less compelling is the argument about incarceration, where you cite Michelle Alexander. Uh, I think Michelle Alexander's book is interesting, but I think there have also been some critiques, quite valid critiques, showing that the movement to make incarceration more prevalent was pushed by both white and black political leaders over the last three decades. Um, And you also cite the fact that you think it's unjust that African Americans are incarcerated at a rate that's disproportionate to the rate in the population, but men are also incarcerated at a rate that's disproportionate when you consider the ratio of men and women in the population. So there is pretty compelling evidence on that particular point of incarceration that Michelle Alexander might not be correct in her assessment of of the function of incarceration. How do you feel about the counter arguments here? So, uh, so I certainly don't rely on on the new Jim Crow. Uh, uh, I have a lot of critiques of it. I admire that book greatly, but I have a lot of critiques of it. My work is informed by a broad swath of brilliant work on mass incarceration, not just by Michelle Alexander, but Vashla Weaver, um, uh, uh, Vashla Weaver, Heather M. Thompson, Elizabeth Hinton, uh, uh, Bruce Western, uh, and a host of theorists who've been uh, who've been looking at this. And you know, it, it you need to look very carefully at uh, at the causes. Um, you're referring to uh, in so let's take your points in order. There's first first there's the point uh, uh, about uh, both black and white um, 
there's been both black and white support for incarceration policies, the focus of my friend and colleague James Foreman's book, Locking Up Our Own, um, and before that, The Black Silent Majority, uh, Michael Fortner's book. Um, so, uh, so I think historically I side with Donna Murch's critique of Michael Fortner's book uh, in, in the Boston Review. I think, uh, I think Black Silent Majority selectively picks targets. There were certain politicians who, who, uh, who uh, supported those policies, but it's certainly not the case that Malcolm X was unpopular in Harlem. I think Donna Murch's critique is quite accurate. So I think, you know, look, um, Black Silent Majority looks at New York. Um, and, uh, and, and Foreman looks at DC. I think Foreman's historical analysis is, is, is correct. Uh, I, I still think there's a critique of the sort Merch focuses on that you need to look at which groups of, of, of black, uh, black, uh, which groups of the black population. I mean, you know, I, you can't generalize about black Americans anymore than you can generalize about Jewish Americans or white Americans. So it's ridiculous to, but, uh, but. Uh, he's looking at uh, at black opinion leaders, uh, politicians, uh, judges, uh, uh, cl- clergy members in Washington D.C. Uh, you also need to look at what did poor black Americans in D.C. think about the police? What were their views? And I think Donna Murch is making this case that uh, there was a difference. There was more of a recognition of the threat that these carceral policies held. Furthermore, unlike Fortner, Foreman is harshly critical. Foreman regards it as a tragedy that black opinion elites were were lured in by these incarcer- harsh incarceration policies. He he he. His book is a tragic is a tragedy is a story of tragedy. Don't forget that nine percent of the world's prison population is black American right now. I mean, that's one of the largest, maybe the largest percentage ever, other than the Holocaust, of one group uh, being incarcerated like that. So you have to just objectively look at that. Um, the, so on the, uh, on the issues of, uh, of, the, um, statist- of, of what's going on, here in my classes, I go fine-grained typically into uh, the issues uh, using, uh, using the great work of uh, Naomi Murakawa, uh, Bruce Western, Bachelor Weaver. So in the in last, like, uh, in t- 2000 to 2012, in the research, what people did is they bore down on, uh, say, felony convictions. Uh, when you have priors, uh, if you have like a misdemeanor prior, it's going to make what would be a misdemeanor then turn into a felony. So over over policing in a neighborhood is going to result in people being arrested, b- people having records that then count against them when they offend again. So, uh, so when you look at the statistics about crime, you know, that's a very important fact to look at. What is the policing in the neighborhood? What's the relative policing and how much here has to do with prior offenses that wouldn't have been, uh, that wouldn't have been prior offenses in other neighborhoods. Um, I mean, I'm a geek on this stuff, so I could go on, but, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the fundamental issue is there's no doubt that black Americans have much higher murder rates than white Americans. And it's something that, you know, any, whenever I discuss this in my classes, I begin with. But the question that faces us is why? (laughs) And what's the proper reaction to that? Um, What Nick, what Johnson did 
as Elizabeth Hinton's brilliant work has shown, is Johnson had two types of programs, programs to get black Americans jobs and program and incarceration. Uh, what Nixon did is he destroyed the social welfare state. Uh, he destroyed the jobs programs. Some of them were ineffective, I admit. Uh, uh, but uh, they focused too much on training people for non-existent jobs rather than giving, you know, creating jobs. But Nixon, Nixon destroyed the social welfare system. And when you're doing that, you're going to increase crime. So when you, when you destroy the fat, when you incarcerate people's parents, it's going to make them more likely to be incarcerated themselves. So, so the causes of incarceration uh, involve radically over-policing neighborhoods, uh, failure to provide social benefits uh, rather than just incarceration. And it's true, as Foreman emphasizes, that some black uh, leaders in Washington, D.C., many black leaders, given the choice of harsh incarceration, given when leaders who were like, we're not going to do social welfare programs, your options are harsh incarceration policies or nothing, chose harsh incarceration policies. And Foreman regards that as an error. Uh, he said they should have held out <laughs> for both because just doing harsh incarceration policies without treating the cause uh, is going to lead to, to, uh, to uh, you know, is going to lead to more crime, which is what I think we see. So I have a much more nuanced, much more, you know, I think Michelle Alexander's book is very important at its time, but you really need to bear down. You need to look at the kind of stuff that John Pfaff looks at, local level prosecutors, to understand the, the face of incarceration. Um, I think something like the basic story of Michelle Alexander is roughly right. There's a strong race-based element to the politics there. Um, but, uh, but as I argue in my book, uh, you know, when you remove the social welfare systems and then you, you create more crime and then that feeds into fascist politics. On education, which is a topic you cover more extensively in the conclusion to your book on propaganda, you talk about how the education system is and has been for a very long time, especially secondary education, pre-college education, uh, has been part of the propaganda system. And I agree, and I think I'm maybe fairly cynical. I feel like um, because education is now public and under the control of the government, it always will be to some degree, serve a propagandistic function. As a college educator, what do you think college-level educators can do to address this issue? And what do you yourself do? Great question. Um, I think, first of all, we always have, have to be aware that education is a political thing. Uh, there's no such thing, I think, as an apolitical education, unless you're just talking about job skills. And, uh, and you don't just want to teach for job skills, because you teach part of the function, I think one of the main functions of education is to produce citizens in a democratic society. I think that, you know, I'm a fan of the view that the truth shall set you free. <laughs> and uh, I don't think any of us have privileged access to the truth. Uh, but I think that, uh, that, uh, that the truth is something, uh, I mean, partial truth can be very dangerous, as Carter G. Woodson emphasizes in The Miseducation of the Negro. He's like, you can have an education system that teaches some truths and fails to mention others. Like, for instance, if you just say, the black murder rate is much higher than the, the white murder rate, and leave it at that, <laughs> then, you know, people are going to leave with a certain view <laughs> that you don't want them to leave with. So truth is not just it. Um, 
truth by itself won't do it. And you can't teach everything because there's not enough time in the day or the year or the universe to teach everything. There are too many facts. So you need to make selections. So when you say the truth stuff set you free, it's going to be, uh, <laughs> that's, that's making it too easy on yourself. Um, but uh, one thing that's extremely central, I emphasize this in my new book a lot, is that history is central and has to be taught from all perspectives. If you're teaching history just from one perspective, you're not teaching history. Uh, and then you give people a skewed sense of history. So, you know, if you're teaching American history, U.S. history without teaching indigenous history, without teaching the history of slavery, uh, you know, if you're teaching a glorified version of history, you open yourself up to dangers in your political system. Teach everything and let people decide whether the glorified view has plausibility. Uh, you know, what we need, Du Bois emphasizes this, the last chapter of Black Reconstruction is called The Propaganda of History. And he says, you need to teach the truth. You can't teach history as a way to make yourself feel good. You need to teach the truth. Uh, you know, when you're teaching mass incarceration, you need to you need to talk about the facts that, you know, the crime rates are what they are, um, you know, but then you need to go further than that. So, uh, so I think, I think, you know, you need to be democratic education needs all perspectives. Uh, we need to be aware that certain perspectives, there's going to be pressure to marginalize them. And there's going to be a battle between the people who are saying, stop marginalizing this perspective and the people who are saying, uh, okay, in margin, you're claiming marginalization when you really seek domination. <laughs> and that's an age old argument that, you know, is healthy. It's not unhealthy to have, and we should continue having it. But make sure that both sides are around to make that argument. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Take care. Thank you so much, Chris. This is a terrific conversation. Jason's book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, hit bookshelves on September 4th and is also available as an audiobook. You can find Jason on Twitter at Jason Intratour. That's Jason, I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R. His website is jason-stanley.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. As always, this show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Thank you.